Hey, Drinking Buddies. This is the second episode of The Drinking Buddies Show. I'm your host, Frank Rogers. In this episode, I'm excited to introduce Greg Beck, Saki Sommelier. Go through his backstory and dig into why he's the accidental sake expert. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe and share it with a buddy. Let's get started. My pleasure today to introduce Greg Beck, Saki Sommelier. We wanted to focus on what made Greg the man he is today. So, Greg, introduce yourself. Uh, well, you already introduced me. No, more. But it's a pleasure to be here <laughs> in my own house. Thank you for coming. Yes. Yeah, I've uh, become an accidental expert in sake, and uh, I've been homebrewing beer and cider and other experiments in kombucha and Japanese plum wine and other fermented experiments uh, for about seven years, a little more than seven years now. Just kind of took a circuitous route to get here, uh, but that also introduced me to you. So that's right. Very happy to uh, be doing this with you. Excellent. Me too. But uh, let's take it all the way back to Tucson. Yeah, I am from Tucson, Arizona, and my family moved around a lot when I was a kid. So I ended up spending the first half of my childhood in the Inland Empire here in Southern California. And I uh, moved back with my family to Arizona when I was 12. So I did middle school, high school, and university uh, all in Tucson. Graduated from University of Arizona in 2006, Bear Down. Just before graduating, I met you in Japan on our uh, Year in Japan program. That's right. But uh, even before you went to Japan, uh, you got interested in Japanese culture and the language especially. Why don't you tell us a little bit how you got into it? Yeah, J Japan was a total curveball. Uh, in high school, I thought I'd be an architect. I really enjoyed learning German because I had an outstanding German teacher. Shout out to Frau Duisburg. In college, I was really disappointed with the German professor I had just on day one. I took my very first German class in college, which I had tested into a, a 300 level German class. I asked her uh, a question at the end of class, and she uh, was not a, a native German speaker to begin with. Uh, and her answer was something along the lines of that's just the way it is and you'll have to get used to it. And I was like, oh, oh, this is this is not <laughs> Frau Duisburg level. No. Uh, German explanations. So I dropped that. And when I went to sign up for languages the next year, uh, I saw Japanese was available. Then the second semester of was a very difficult language to start studying. Somebody suggested uh, a study abroad program. The, the rest, as they say, is history. You saw the Japanese was available, but had you had any exposure either growing up in the Inland Empire or in Arizona to any sort of Japanese culture? Uh, like a lot of high school kids, I got into uh, anime through like Toonami. Yeah, just friends who were buying like bootleg DVDs off of uh, eBay. Oh, yeah, back, back in those days, you couldn't get anything. Back when eBay was new. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's also, I think... Maybe for a really young listener, they wouldn't realize how difficult it was to get 
much Japanese anything in the yeah. US at that point. Yeah, there was there was one Japanese restaurant that wasn't sushi in all of Tucson, Arizona. Yeah. Which is a city of uh I think at the time about a million population. Yeah. There was one actual Japanese restaurant that wasn't doing sushi. Right. Napster had just become a thing back in these days. But I should also mention like that was in high school. Yeah. And in high school, the anime I was watching was all in English. Yeah. And all I liked were the stories and the characters and the drawing styles. The language hadn't even set in right. uh, until I started watching um, old black and white Kurosawa films yeah. that were dubbed. And I heard these samurai speaking Japanese and I thought, oh, Japanese sounds cool, <laughs> you know. And then you would see in a lot of the um, animation, some of the, the writing. And it's like, oh, the language looks cool. Like the alphabets and the right. Japanese, uh, the Chinese characters. Um, so the, the kind of seed of interest was there. And then once I went to University of Arizona and saw the classes available, that's, that's when all those things came to a intersection and I took the dive, took the plunge. So did you take a, a class before you studied abroad or was it just straight? I took two semesters, yeah. 101 and 102. Yeah. And spoke very little Japanese when I met you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you even remember. Oh, yeah, no, I remember because we had the different classes. You were in C? I was in C, yeah. Yeah, you were in the third level of five. Yeah. Uh, based on our ability, based on our placement yeah. ability. Uh, no, you were way better. I, I was in the very bottom class. Uh, I think the difference is um, I, I caught I caught up. Right? Uh, after I, I would say it took me about four months to catch up, though. Yeah, I think all of us. Wanting to back it up, there were what forty-one of us. Yeah, about forty-one of us from. All around the world, actually. I was surprised there were people that weren't even from the English-speaking world. We had a, a French student. We had... Mm -hmm. Yes. But we had a, a good mix of students. And so, yeah, we all started off at different levels. But as soon as we got into Japan, I mean, everybody's Japanese accelerated very rapidly. Immersion is key. Immersion is yeah. huge. Yeah. And I think... Uh, so what did, what did you get the most out of your experience? You know, we land in Japan... Alcohol poisoning. Alcohol poisoning. No. Lots of no, I mean, for me, that year studying abroad, for both of us, I think, um, made us conversationally fluent right. in Japanese, uh, which is the biggest thing I got out of it, maybe. But also the classes that we took in English in the afternoons about Japanese culture really had a strong impact on me in terms of my curiosity about the culture and the history. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, all joking aside, the drinking culture was, was a big thing to me. And this was my second time being outside of America. The first time being my uh, summer study abroad in Germany when I was 17. Mm -hmm. And no coincidence, I was, as a 17-year-old, acutely aware that I could drink being in Germany right. and being very excited about that. Same in Japan, we went on this program right after I turned uh, 20, and 
the age to drink in Japan is 20. Right. So as soon as I stepped off the plane, I was suddenly of drinking age for the second time in my life yeah. without ever turning 21. It was an exciting kind of like early access it's true. to, yeah. to, uh, the world of alcohol. And I, I definitely, you know, had, had my, my fun and my, my childhood or my childish, uh, experimentation phase started early. But I also, you know, took to it with the same sort of studious nature that I had for every other aspect of Japanese culture and language. Yeah, I still remember we went to Matsuyama and we had that drinking party. The, the college students there prepared for us. It was just so funny because I don't think any of us were ready for it. Like yeah. we didn't really know what was coming because we just weren't familiar with Japanese culture at that point, really. Like none of us had gone to a Japanese drinking party like that. So they bring us into a, a room and they're like, all right, it's basically drinking time. And I think that was the first time that I had really been, had an amazing time hanging out with all these people, drinking, having it like so much fun. It wasn't like a high school party where, you know, people are just drinking to get drunk and experimenting stuff. It was like a genuine adult fun event. And I remember like, I still have a bunch of fun pictures from it. We were all just like hanging out with them, getting to know them. And so I don't think I'll ever forget that because it was like, this is Japanese culture. This is how we like to party. This is how we like to get to know each other. And I'm like, I'm 100% for this. Oh, man, we got to compare those pictures. <laughs> so, yeah, so you basically you got early access to drinking culture and in a way that wasn't like hiding out at your stepmom's house in the basement drinking, like you're you're really getting experience and seeing it. So we finished up our year in Japan and you head back to the U.S. What's next? Uh, well, I uh, very quickly visited you over at the University of Hawaii when I was on spring break. And uh, yeah, just wrapped up my, my degree as quickly as possible. I figured out that I could switch from an English major to a Japanese major and graduate on time, even though we had spent that year in Japan. So I got out as, as quickly as possible. We had heard about the JET program uh, through uh, some people we met in our study in Japan. So I applied for that and went right back to uh, Japan, but uh, living in Hiroshima this time. And for people that might not be familiar with it, what is the JET program? Yeah, so I'm actually the co-president currently of a uh, nonprofit uh, alumni association for the JET program, uh, Southern California and Arizona chapter. So I'm very happy to talk about that too. Uh, JET stands for Japan Exchange and Teaching. It is a, an opportunity for college graduates of uh, Eng native English-speaking backgrounds to go work in Japan as a civil servant. And the majority of those jobs are offered through local governments with their board of educations. And once you're employed by a Japanese board of education, they send you to schools to help teach English usually as an assistant to a Japanese person who is a, an English teacher. So that job is an ALT. And uh, there's another job for people who are more proficient in Japanese uh, called coordinator of international relations. And there's a third job as well. That's a sports exchange. I remember something. Yeah. It's S E A C. And I think that's more like people that were like college athletes and things like that. Right. Like they have um, it's people that have like strong coaching. Yeah. Uh, and, and athletic education 
ability already or uh, know-how already. Yeah. So that's a, that's probably actually the hardest one to right. get. And there are fewer positions and it's more uh, international in terms of you don't necessarily have to come from an English speaking country right. uh, to do that one. But, but uh, and there are also non uh, English speaking uh, CIRs as well. Mm-hmm. The coordinator of international relations can come from China or Korea or France or uh, the Netherlands. Uh, it just depends on whatever that local government's needs are. But that's all through the JET program. And because I got into that straight out of college and moved right back to Hiroshima, I ended up staying there for five years and started as an English teacher and was able to actually transfer to the coordinator of international relations part of the way through. And as part of Hiroshima's orientation for new JET program participants, we would do a one-week camp in a a part of uh, the broader Hiroshima prefecture or state called Saijo. And we did like a one-week intensive survival Japanese camp, uh, which, of course, for me, was more like welcome back to Japan party time because I was already conversationally fluent. So there, there wasn't a lot of work for me that needed to get done that during that week. So what I discovered that during that time was that that area called Saijo is one of the three oldest sake brewing cities in all of Japan. And then we go to a couple of festivals. Yeah. Oh yeah. So every, every October, they have a sake matsuri or a festival. Yeah. Yeah. Japanese sake festival where all of the sake makers from all over the country converge and it's a all you can drink basically taste testing. Right. Like a food and wine festival, but for sake. Yeah. But just sake and literally hundreds of kinds. And you could go, you could, as I have several times, attend both days and never drink the same sake twice and definitely not be able to try all of them because of alcohol's effects on the body. (laughs) (laughs) And and remind me, what time does that start? It was like 10 in the morning or it started fairly early. I think it started at uh, 10 a.m. on Saturday and 11 or 12 on Sunday. And the the rest of the town uh, where all these sake breweries existed year round would also open their doors and give tours. So I would generally get there around nine or 10 in the morning and do some brewery tours and see how sake was made and, you know, get, get a little free taste test or, or something from the local brewery and enjoy like the whole city's festival atmosphere. And, you know, they have the food stalls called the Atai. And so you say it's kind of like almost a Japanese version of Oktoberfest in a way. Yeah, I would absolutely compare that to Oktoberfest, although I haven't gotten to go to Munich yet. But the, the long and short of that is when I would get to the actual line to get into the park where all of the sake tasting is going on, it'd be about 11 or 11 a.m. or noon. And they would literally already be hauling people out on stretchers. Japanese people who got a little too carried away too quickly <laughs> would be being taken out on stretchers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was, a, it was definitely a good time. I mean, that, that wasn't like the majority of the people. That's just a couple of people. Yeah. I mean, the overall atmosphere is very fun. Yeah, it's super festive. Everyone brings a tarp right. and food, and you can also come and go, and you can buy food outside or inside the venue. Right. So it's basically an all-day picnic 
So, Plus all you can drink sake. So basically you're inside Joe, you're going to the festival, you've already had your your exchange student experience. So then you have to head home after that. What do you do next? So that was a great question I was asking myself at that time. And I uh, had considered going to South America to study Spanish the same way. And just during the job hunting during my job hunt, job hunting. during my job <laughs> hunting uh, exercises or whatever, I uh, ended up finding employment with a Japanese television network as a journalist in New York City, which seemed like enough of a exciting adventure for my next step that I would end up moving to New York and living there for five years close to five years and working during that time as a journalist for TBS, Tokyo Broadcasting System. Yeah, I mean, I never stopped being interested in uh, Japanese traditional uh, spirits and, and uh, alcohol, but I also, being back in America, which unlike Japan, it's completely legal to homebrew in America. So being back in uh, New York City, I started homebrewing at that point in my uh in my kitchen in a tiny apartment yeah what was in the first Queens. thing you made uh black ipa black ipa yeah the reason i got into homebrewing was and is that there are so many styles of craft beer that and and there are just a few that kind of dominate the market demand i think anybody can tell you what an ipa is at this point Right. Uh, Everybody's got one. And yeah, and even breweries that swore they would never make IPAs are still making IPAs now. Right. Um, People want. (laughs) Yeah, and and you know, like I said, my favorite style is black IPA, but it's it's a much less common style. And so I thought I'm just going to make my own, and then I can drink it anytime. I don't have to wait for some brewery to make it and. You know, as I kept drinking different kinds of craft beer and I found a lot of other styles like that, like uh, Rauch beer is a really delicious smoky lager that you just don't see very often. And so that became another uh, style in my repertoire. Very nice. So you said you're in New York for five years. Yep. So how are you keeping up your connection with Japanese culture and especially you know, with sake and all that while you're there? Well, I worked in a Japanese office for this television network and I uh, was one of, there were never more than three people, including myself, who were not American. Uh, there were never more than that. So most, most of the people in our office were Japanese. Most of them spoke only in Japanese all day, every day, all day, every day. And, day, every day. and uh, <laughs> Maanichi, it's a demo. And the culture was just very Japanese. It felt like being in a Japanese bubble where if we went out for food, it was usually Japanese food. And uh, New York is a great place for authentic Japanese food. And even, even sake, you know, it's one of the best or one of the few places where you can find a great variety of sake in America. I think there's a lot of Japanese expats, a lot of Japanese business people going in and out of there anyway. For, I think, especially people in Tokyo, like if they're going to go anywhere in the U.S., it's probably going to be New York. I mean, it's just one of the top places 
for so many of the industries that they would be in. And yeah. if they're going to be a chef, then they're probably going to try and go to New York, maybe LA, but I feel like New York draws so many people from Japan. Yeah. So what made you leave New York? I just couldn't take it anymore. Now, uh, I love, <laughs> I honestly love New York. The industry I was in and the neighborhood I was in didn't feel sustainable. Uh, basically, I loved my job, but I was overworked and underpaid. And there wasn't really any room for career growth with the company. All of my family was back here in the West Coast. So uh, moving back here, I was hopeful that I would find uh, a, a full-time journalism gig. But I also, um, between quitting that job and moving out here, fell back on you know my old experience uh, throughout high school and college in the hospitality area of, you know, serving and bartending. So I ended up working at a, a really excellent Japanese izakaya in New York just before moving out here. When the job hunt uh, for a journalism gig in LA wasn't immediately producing results, I started working at another Japanese place out here in the meantime. From there, I found uh, a job for a food and beverage exporter where I was their only in-house Japan expert. So they put me in charge of export sales for Japan. And, uh, Which means you were trying to sell American goods to the U.S., correct? Or to the U.S., to Japan, correct? Exactly, yeah. Selling food and beverage to Japan. And even during that time, I never quit my uh, uh, serving and bartending gig at the Japanese restaurant because one's during the day, one's at night, extra income's nice. And uh, I honestly, I've always loved serving and bartending and being a part of that industry comes with so many fringe benefits, like, you know, lots of free, delicious food, the food and beverage trade shows that you get to go to are are great and you get advanced looks at new products that haven't reached the market yet as well as just being able to expand your knowledge and uh, experience with other brands and and other uh, labels so yeah since that point i no longer work in uh in export in export sales i did that just for a year but i also um took kind of irregular gigs as a sake expert for a Japanese importer and distributor. Because at, at some point living out here in Los Angeles, I I had been volunteering at um, different sake-related uh, events. And I came to meet a guy named Toshio Ueno. And he is one of the few master sake sommeliers. And uh, I think he's one of two in California, the entire state. And... He was the first person to really recognize and identify my my knowledge in of sake as an expertise, and it had never even dawned on me that that was unusual or rare. It's just a hobby of yours. Like it was you liked and yeah. passion. Yeah, I was really into it, and I learned a lot about it because I loved it, and because I spoke Japanese, it was easier for me to dive deeper into it. And to get 
answers to questions that maybe uh, a non-Japanese speaking sake enthusiast would have a harder time finding the answers to. So uh, that's why, uh, to bring it all full circle, I, I like to call myself an accidental expert. Uh, but since then, I have gotten certified as a, uh, a sake specialist, a uh, international kikisakeshi, which is uh, uh, basically what we would call in the West uh, a sake sommelier. In part two, we'll move into more of the basics of sake, because I think a lot of people maybe have an idea of what it is, but don't even really know how it's prepared. Yeah. Just personally, I didn't even realize for the longest time that it was brewed, not made like some other, you know, I was thinking more along the lines of vodka or tequila. Yeah. Where it's closer to beer than it is to liquors. Yeah. Or wine. You're not alone. Basically, I would say eight out of 10 or four out of five, if you want to reduce it, uh, people that I interact with think that it's either wine, a kind of wine, because it's often translated as rice wine, or that it's distilled. People will say, this is distilled, right? <laughs> I go, nope, <laughs> it's brewed. Uh, and I say, but it's wine? Nope. <laughs> it's its own thing. So yeah, sake is a, an OG craft beverage. It is just one of these things that we took, we being human beings, took very seriously and, and did a small batch with meticulous attention to detail and the the fluctuations in, in flavor and, and procedure. And we just put a lot of time and effort into experimenting in Japan for the last thousand plus years. So if that sounds like beer uh, or wine, then you can understand how sake is such a craft beverage. Thanks for listening to The Drinking Buddies Show. I hope you liked it. Be sure to subscribe and share with your buddies. Check us out at www.thedrinkingbuddyshop.com and connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Take care and drink well.